John Lomaking believed in me. My dad believed in me and my teachers believed in me, but I didn't. But I couldn't argue with the fact that every time I was doing something for God, God was showing up. This is Camus. And this is Kylie. Welcome to God is Real, God is Good, a podcast where we collect stories about God working in people's lives through big miraculous ways all the way down to small everyday things. Hi, this is Camus, and this week I have Dee Casper with me. And Dee is the director of CORE, the evangelistic school that I went to. It's been a while. I don't even want to think about it. Um, so yes, this is Dee. Dee is a really nice person. He somehow started CORE from the ground up. And I don't even know how he did that. In fact, the first year of craziness with us all. And yet somehow managed to do a second year. So that is Dee in a nutshell. Um, so Dee, why don't you tell everybody where you're from? Sure. I'm just glad that you think I'm a nice person after spending a year in my program. That's, uh, <laughs> that's my greatest achievement in life. So um, you still like me, even after having to live with me for nine months. So that's a, that's a blessing. Uh, I'm from the state of Illinois, is where I was born and raised. But I've had a bit of a gypsy life and have moved around quite a bit. Uh, but currently live in the state of Pennsylvania. That's where the program is, so you got to live there. Um, how about you tell us a little bit about your religious background growing up? Okay. Well, I was largely unchurched. Uh, we didn't really go to church growing up, apart from, you know, when my grandparents would take me to vacation in Bible school at their Baptist church, or, uh, you know, I kind of started going to a Baptist church when I was in junior high and high school, but not really for reasons of seeking to become a better person or anything. It was just to, at one stage, I think, try to save a relationship because they said I wasn't a Christian. And uh, I had friends that went there and we hung out. So, yeah, I was largely unchurched, basically, uh, until I was into my, you know, late teens, early 20s. Okay. It's good to know. And we like to pray before we get started in telling your story. So I will do that now. Dear Father in Heaven, thank you for this day and for Dee and this chance to get together and just hear how you've been working in his life. Help give him the words to know what to say and help us to just touch our hearts and listeners' hearts too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Dee, it is your turn to tell your story. All right. Where do you begin? Um, so I, my... I grew up, um, I was actually at my parents' wedding. I don't remember much. Uh, Mom was mad pregnant with me. It looked like somebody had smuggled a watermelon under her wedding dress. And um, so my parents were together for a few years. They got divorced when I was about three or four. And uh, that was my mom's second marriage. She had a child in the first marriage. They got divorced. The dad got custody. My mom and dad got divorced and he got custody. So pretty rare in the 80s for um, the, the dad to get custody on both occasions. But yeah. that's what happened. Uh, that ended up being for our benefit, really, um, mm. because mom had a pretty you know, unstable life from that point forward. Um, you know, she, her upbringing was one where she really kind of struggled. Um, her biological mother wasn't really in the picture. So I think there was an affair. Her biological mom had an affair and then kind of didn't really even want mom. So her dad got her, he got married and, you know, the, the lady that he married legally adopted mom to be her, you know, legal mother. Mm -hmm. But, um, I think that because of the pain of the first marriage, I'm sure that any baggage or things along those lines, you know, especially if, if someone's been unfaithful, uh, part of our human condition can be one that is difficult to trust again. Yeah. Um, or we can kind of, you know, project how someone else hurt us on the next person. I'm sure there had to have been some of that. And so my mom was a reminder to my adoptive grandmother of the pain of my grandfather's first marriage. So mom always felt treated differently. And so she's basically been rejected by two moms and that kind of set her up for some, some heartbreak. And so she was, you know, many times in life looking for other people to do for her really what only God could do. And so because of that, she was kind of going from relationship to relationship to relationship. So she married again after my dad 
and the guy that she married beat her up really bad. Mm. Um, at this stage, I was about five. Uh, my grandfather had, um, he had me at that stage, I guess I was just visiting him for the weekend or something. And he dropped me off at my mom's place there in the projects where she was. And uh, mom opens a door and she's purple, she's blue, she's swollen. She's not the person that I knew. And as a five-year-old kid, um, you know, walking into that apartment in that context certainly was not the most comfortable thing I've had ever done in my life. <laughs> Definitely and, not. And um, mom, she told me she fell down the stairs, but even as a five-year-old kid, I knew something was wrong and mm -hmm. something wasn't right. And so um, that was a pretty traumatic experience for obvious reasons. And the divorce before that really set me up in, in a really bad place as a kid. I mean, innocence basically died there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that kind of, you know, optimistic, you know, childlike simplicity and innocence, you know, the, the lights kind of went out for me at that stage at a very young, young age and kind of like immediately started lying and stealing and doing all kinds of things to get myself in trouble that were just coping mechanisms to feel like I could be in control in some form or fashion because I just didn't want to get hurt. Aww. And um, yeah, there were more marriages and divorces along the way. I think the last one was number seven. So she's been married and divorced seven times. And uh, though she didn't get custody because she kept pushing for visitations, I mm -hmm. still was exposed to a lot of just craziness and instability. And she had one of her, one of her cousins, I think, um, would babysit me sometimes and like watching Freddy Krueger and Alien and all oh. those just crazy stuff. It was just yeah. like this perfect storm to completely destroy and ruin a child's life and fill them with fear. That's basically what my life was. <laughs> oh my goodness. And but you know, I never, I never cried myself to sleep. I never went to see a therapist, though I should have. Hmm. Um, and so I ended up developing a pretty high level of resiliency that I was functional, but in a large amount of pain. Hmm. And so um, it's not that I wasn't smart, but I just didn't apply myself in school because I was basically just surviving school, you know. Yeah. And that went on all the way into high school. Um, I got into music in fifth grade and junior high. And then in high school, I got into marching percussion into drumline. And that was kind of the thing that made life worth living for me. You know, like it just, um, people asked me like what I studied in school and I told them drumline and my girlfriend, like that was basically <laughs> all that took my time or my interest. Yeah. And just got involved in a lot of nonsense with my friends. I, I, I was afraid to do drugs and drink because I thought my dad would kill me if I did it. So I, it wasn't a violent person, but I just was so afraid of disappointing my dad. I didn't do that, but was a bully, you know, just a mean kid, uh, mm -hmm. even though I was small and scrawny and really should have been beat up for a lot of the things I said <laughs> it did. It was just an act of God's mercy, but I, so I just did not have an ideal childhood. You know, I grew up in a broken home. My dad got married in once because he felt like my boy needs a woman in the house. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't a good scenario. She had a son that really didn't like my dad or me and oh. kind of, you know, would say things about us that weren't true to turn her against us. And mm -hmm. so it lasted a year or two, I guess, maybe more, but not very long, a couple of years probably. And then it was just me and dad, you know, from that point forward. So I'm not in church. Like I said, I went to vacation Bible school when I would go visit my mom's parents or, um, you know, if I would go stay with them, I'd go there on Sunday morning, but not, this wasn't a part of my life, you know? So yeah. I didn't have Jesus to get me through the substantial amount of pain that I was dealing with. My parents weren't going to church and so they didn't have Jesus to give me what I needed. So I just was, dad was working. So he wasn't really there to supervise me. So mm. pretty much anything that came onto my head, I just did. And so I developed a lot of bad habits, a lot of bad patterns, a lot of addictive tendencies and things that just really was not looking the best. Um, but I, I did have success in music. And so that was kind of what my passion and desire was. And I get into my senior year of high school. I started kind of being with this girl. It was kind of this on again, off again not really sure what to call the status of it. I guess it's complicated <laughs> would be the uh, status if people even use Facebook anymore. And that was all that mattered to me in life. You know, I was putting in more effort than I was getting in response, 
But when mm-hmm. I was getting a response, it, it was, you know, heaven on earth in my mind. And so, yeah, I just wasn't, wasn't in the best of places. And uh, after my senior year of high school, um, the local university had a marching band. And a buddy of mine, actually a mentor of mine, used to run the drum line at the university and at the high school that I was going to. And he told me, like, just show up. I was like, you mean I don't need to sign up for the class or go to college? He says, no, just show up. And so I did it. And so I was in the marching Salukis, even though I didn't go to college, even though I didn't sign up for the class. And the band director actually one day asked me kind of, because people, if they went to the junior college nearby, um, they could still be in the local university's marching band. Mm-hmm. And I remember like he kind of got the idea and caught on to the fact that like he can't really take attendance for this guy because he's not, he's not registered <laughs> in school and he didn't even sign up for this class. But so he kind of asked me some questions. I don't even know what I told him exactly. But anyway, he let me stay. And so I did it. But that summer in, in 2014, um, as I was going to rehearsals, my dad worked in the same community where that university was, though we lived about 45 minutes from there, maybe 40 minutes. Okay. And so it was a decent drive. But um, yeah. after I got out of high school, I didn't go to college, was working in a retail and would go do marching salukis. And my dad would encourage me to come by and, you know, just sit with him and talk with him before I'd go to rehearsal and just, you know, when I work in between work and, and band and stuff. And something was different. I, I, I couldn't even tell you why at that point. What had happened was September 11, 2001. Um, Camus, were you even alive then? I was a couple months old. Okay, so you did exist at that stage. So, um, yeah, so and that event happened, and it changed the world in a lot of ways. The world has not been the same place since that happened, um, let alone in COVID and stuff even more recently. But that was one of those big, like, the world will never be the same type of events. And unbeknownst to me, because I'm just a messed up teenager who's numbing their pain and just surviving life, my dad actually became a Christian. Um, I mean, we culturally, you know, would communicate that we were Christians, but we didn't go to church. We never talked about God, like didn't read the Bible, didn't pray. Like there was no family worship. There was none of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I did start going to church, my dad was supportive of that, but he didn't go. Um, there was a couple that would come pick me up and take me to church. And I was in junior high and part of high school. And then dad would pick me up after church because that was his one day off. He worked. And so that was his one day off. He wasn't going to wake up early on that day. He was going to sleep. So he came and picked me up afterwards. But again, was 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 supportive of me doing it. He felt like it was a good thing. It just wasn't something that he did. Mm-hmm. So anyway, dad becomes a Christian. Like dad starts watching TV ministries and reading the Bible. And I'm clueless for three years. Have no clue that this has happened, that dad has found Jesus. Because I'm wow. just so immersed in my own world and nonsense. Looking back, I could see that there were changes in dad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just thought they were kind of uncomfortable and weird and didn't really catch on to what was going on. And it wasn't like dad was talking about God. Like he was just doing this exploration on his own. Mm-hmm. And he had some like big, like cookbook sized Bible. I don't even know where he got it. I never even noticed it until later, but I think he had it like in his you know dresser or something. But yeah, that was kind of the thing. And so in 2004, uh, three years later, he, he starts showing me love in a way I'd never experienced before. And it was because God was living in his heart and God was loving me through him. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that dad didn't love me or that I doubted that before, but just something was different. And yeah, I was just being shown this overwhelming amount of love. And, you know, when I grew up in a scenario where mom has a lot of things that she's dealing with, she'd promised me after one of her husbands, she'd never get married again. And then she did, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's a vacancy there, you know, what was, and I kind of felt rejected by my mom. Yeah. But the crazy thing was at the same time, you know, the mental health field, they called enmeshment, you know, where she's like, you know, kind of over being, yeah, I don't even know how to phrase it exactly, but she's just being like overly clingy to me. So mm-hmm. like I felt rejected because I felt like she'd rather have chaos than be a stable mom in my life. Yeah. But then the enmeshment happened in the sense that I felt like I was more of a parent to her than she was to me that, you know, she's always, you know, wanting to be with me and see me. And I just, um, you know, I felt like I was trying to give her advice to stop. I just found myself in this situation where it was like 
enmeshment and rejection, kind of a unique Mm -hmm. uh, scenario where I felt rejected by my mom, but I also felt like she was using me to feel normal Mm -hmm. um, and kind of like over lunging to me in other ways. I felt like more of a parent to her than she was to me. And so that's kind of the, you know, the backdrop. So when dad's showing me this love I'd never experienced before, like I felt like a part of my soul was being filled in a way that had never been filled because I didn't have that normalcy in the home. We weren't worshiping God and all of that. So that, that kind of started my Christian journey. I had some friends, you know, that were deep into church in high school. They called them the God squad. <laughs> um, and, you know, these girls who were in church all the time and, and, mm-hmm. and a guy that was that way too. And they, they became good friends of mine and, you know, they were supportive of me, obviously, in this Christian journey. And I, I needed that and appreciated that. And I was actually going through my yearbook from high school a while back when I was cleaning some stuff out of storage. And like, even then, you know, that girl that I was kind of with and not with and with and not with, you know, kind of referred to me as this godly person. And I thought like, I look back at myself back then and just, I'm offended, you know, <laughs> uh, at this person, let alone the fact that they had any claim to knowing God. But um, mm-hmm. God is merciful. He's able to make an impression on people in spite of us. And I, I obviously that must've been what happened, but, yeah. uh, so that kind of started my Christian journey. My dad was watching TV ministries. He wasn't going to church. So I was watching like Charles Stanley and Joel Osteen and TD Jakes and people like that. And mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of negative press, particularly about Joel Osteen and TD Jakes. Um, Charles Stanley is a pretty orthodox guy and a pretty well-respected guy. Uh, I mean, his view on prophecy is certainly not going to be my view on prophecy, but in a general sense, you know, he's a pretty orthodox, balanced guy. But um, I, when I was watching Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes, I wasn't getting the vibe, and I'm not endorsing their ministry or their theology at all, by the way, but just, you know, God kind of held his hand over my eyes, I guess, in that sense, because what I got out of their ministry was that God loved me individually, Mm. that it wasn't that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, though that's true, that on an even greater level, God so loved D that he gave his only begotten son. Like I, I came to understand in that season of my life that there's a God in heaven who is deeply interested in me and mm. what happens in my life and that he loves me and likes me. And I'm very thankful for the fact that my introduction to Christianity was not centered on something that was theory or doctrine or prophecy or, you know, and these are all a blessing. It can be great bridges to knowing God. My point is that, and they have a lot of value. I teach all these things in my school, but the fact that what rooted me in my relationship with God was not that I learned about him. Like I came to know him and his love for me first. That was the bedrock of my experience. Mm -hmm. And many times Christians will learn about God and struggle to know him. My Mm -hmm. experience was kind of the opposite. I came to know him and then I learned about him. And I'm thankful that that was kind of the journey that God took me on because in my lost condition, being shamed for living a sin-filled life was not gonna reach me. Um, Being told you need to do this, this, and this, or you're going to be lost, that like that wasn't going to do it. It mm-hmm. was coming to know that I was loved in spite of who I was, that there was a God in heaven who took particular interest in me as I was before I got anything right was of tremendous benefit to me. And that's why my ministry has always been largely based on that reality. The messages that I preach, the lens through which I teach was because that's what won me. And, and many years later, when I became a Seventh-day Adventist, I believed that what these people were saying was true and was biblical, but I had this question initially, yeah, but where's this thing that won me? Where's Mm -hmm. the love of God in this? And once I found that in Adventism, like I really, really believe that this is the place, you know, like I was convinced that what you're saying is true, but when I saw the love of God and the powerful truths of scripture fused together, um, that really, you know, was was something that was an absolute, this thing is legit. I'm not leaving like this, this is home. Mm-hmm. That was some years later, but that's, that, that's kind of my conversion process. Um, I had a lot of things to let go of. And my dad, it, it's supernatural, the level of patience and love he showed me during that season, because mm-hmm. I was so broken, so messed up, so addicted, so consumed with the world 
that I wish I could say that God spoke and it was so regarding my conversion, but that's not my story. My story was was this evolutionary process of not wanting to make a full surrender, of wanting to do God and do me at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it was a lengthy, ugly process that my dad just kept loving me. He just kept believing in me. And I would not be talking with you right now uh, as a minister of the gospel, let alone a Christian, had that not been the case. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever would have made it were it not for that. And God knew what I needed. So I'm thankful that that kind of relentless, tenacious love that I received from my dad in those early years of my experience were what they were, because it it was going to take that uh, for me to truly end up making it through this process. But the difficulty is I had been trying out for a drum and bugle corps, like a professional marching band of sorts. Um, And it's called Drum Corps International, DCI, which is the circuit that I was involved in. Um, It's kind of like Major League Baseball or the National Football League, but it was um, for marching music. So people from around the world would compete for spots on each of these corps. And these corps were based in different areas in the country. So the corps I was auditioning for was in Dubuque, Iowa, the Colts. And I tried out for two years and didn't make it. And the third year that I auditioned, is that year that my conversion begins. So just imagine like God's just starting to get a hold of me. And I go to the first audition, make first cut, go to the second audition, make second cut. And they offer me a contract in February of 2005. And maybe it's January of 2005. I think it was February. And my dad went with me. It's the only camp he went to. And my dad had this heavy, heavy conviction that I shouldn't do this. Mm. But what do you do when your son's just coming around? And I, I mean, this is my dream. Like I blew up the situation with that girl. I messed up really bad and that ended. And so like the only thing I had going for me was this. And it was this horrible drive home, like pouring rain the whole time. You could hardly see. And just this kind of uneasy sense that something's not right. And my dad caught on. He knew what it was. And God is telling us, don't do this. But Mm. like, this is my dream. Like of all the things that God's going to ask for, it's the one thing I would hope that he wouldn't ask for. (laughs) And I just could not. Why this? Right? Like you want me to give up, you know, fashion. You want me to give up like something. But like this, Mm -hmm. like of all things, Jesus, you're going to ask for this. And I just couldn't do it. I just thought like come on, man. Like I only get three years to do this because you age out at 21. Mm-hmm. And I was like, look, Lord, like I love you. I want to serve you, but like, let me have this. And so I, my dad tells me like, buddy, I don't think this is a good idea, but I did it anyway. Um, and I regret that decision now uh, for obvious reasons. You know, those are three years I can't get back. And, but what I'm thankful for is that nothing's wasted with God. And that even though I chose not to say yes to him, he still used that process to prepare me for the leadership roles that I fill today. Um, I ended up being in drumline the first year as a snare drummer, and I was a drum major the last two years. So it's basically a peer leader, like an RA of sorts, where you're conducting the ensemble, but you're also leading the whole group. You're kind of that bridge between the staff and the students and, or the members uh, is what they called us. And so, yeah, I did it for three years. We were on ESPN the three years that I did it. We're on, you know, magazine ads and other stuff. And performing in front of thousands of people in NFL and college stadiums, you know, it's a hype, certainly. But I didn't find what I was looking for there. I didn't find it in the relationship in high school. I didn't find it in success in music. I wasn't finding what I was looking for. Uh, there was still something missing. And I would teach my former drum line that I was in in high school at my old high school in the off season of drum course. I was working retail and teaching drum line. And that was kind of my life, you know, for three years. Yeah. And, but after my first summer of drum corps, my dad didn't know what to do. So he just chose to support me in whatever way he could. So he would show up to shows, uh, you know, film and, you know, just come see me. Uh, he actually surprised me the second year that I marched. He drove all the way up to Virginia from Illinois just wow. to come see me. We went to Washington D.C. you know on our off day, and so that was it was nice to have that. And mm-hmm. in fact, my dad actually tried um, not to remarry my mom, but to just give her a chance to kind of get on her feet. She had got you know a divorced again, and he had invited her to move into our home. 
or, mm. you know, where I grew up as a kid um, to try to get your life back in order and to just be parents to me, not to be husband and wife per se, but just be parents to me mm-hmm. um, because he realized what I didn't receive and how detrimental that was to my development. So dad is um, trying to make up for that. Mom stayed for a bit that first summer, but then she bailed, you know, stability just freaked her out. And so um, she moved on and, uh, that didn't continue. But before I marched that first summer, I think that for the first time in my life as like a 19-year-old, we prayed together as a family, mom, dad, and I. And my dad was pretty emotional when I left. And I didn't understand why. My best friend actually made that drum corps too. So we did it together. I think his mom took us you know, up to Iowa or something that, that weekend. But my dad sensed that he had lost his son. He felt like something is wrong, you know, what's going on here, because he was just getting me back. I was finding healing and growing, but slowly, but at least growing and moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. But my dad had this sense that he had somewhat lost his son to this music thing. And I mean, it's not the best of environments, you know, like you're unsupervised young adults. Um, you know, our core is more modest than most people were shacking up together, sharing sleeping bags, but like our core had the guys on one side of the gym, the girls on the other side with like a buffer in the middle, but that didn't stop things from happening on the bus and changing in front of each other. And it's just, you know, a lot of hookup culture happened in that environment. Plus homosexuality celebrated in that culture and the arts. So Mm -hmm. my dad sensed there's influences there that aren't ideal for a young Christian, but he was just praying for me and trying to support me in what ways he could. And so I get home from that first summer. My dad sits me down to me that he had failed me as a father spiritually. And he asked for my forgiveness. And I remember thinking to myself, why is my dad crying? Like He's the best dad I could hope for. Like He's the hero of my life. At that stage, I could not understand, let alone appreciate why my dad was crying. Later, mm-hmm. I better understood that this is what a man looks like. You take responsibility. You don't run. And the easy thing for my dad to do, what many people would do in that circumstance, is just choose to be better going forward, but not acknowledge the mistakes of the past. He didn't do that. He, this conversion experience for my dad opened his eyes to his responsibility to God as a parent, and he realized he had failed. Now, his parents stopped going to church whenever he was a kid, so he wasn't really given that example hands-on to know how to do him in that kind of headspace to look back upon and appreciate, but he was not mentored on how to be a parent, let alone how to be a godly parent, you know, in, in the best of ways. And so because of that, it just wasn't, he didn't have the tools he needed, but he still so I ended up doing it for two more summers, and uh, my dad actually left his job um, to fully invest in me. And that was a big sacrifice for him to make because how are we going to survive? Um, but he just realized that nothing is more important than my son being saved. And I'm going to stop at nothing until that happens. And so in his mind, that was the only way to do this was to just leave everything and fully invest in me. So we got rid of satellite to curtail expenses. So we couldn't watch Joel Osteen or TD Jakes anymore. Um, and so we just had over-the-air broadcast. This is right before they transitioned to digital um, that they have now. That people can even remember what it used to be like before that. We only had two options for wholesome programming. We could watch 3ABN, which is um, you know, the Adventist Church's one of its largest television stations, or uh, another Christian television station where they you know, peddled a lot of like vitamins and cosmetics and stuff. <laughs> okay. And um, I didn't need vitamins or cosmetics, so we started watching 3ABN. And um, some of those Baptist friends I had uh, from high school, I told the mom, who's kind of like a mentor to me, is a sword spiritually. I told her I was watching 3ABN one day. Uh, this is in the fall of 2006. 2006 mm-hmm. And she was like, 3ABN, you know they're Seventh-day Adventists, right? I was like, what's a Seventh-day Adventist? I've been watching 3ABN for months, and I had no idea what she was talking about because there's no frame of reference for me. You know, I'm unchurched, and if anything, I'm just Baptist culturally and attended a Baptist church most recently. But, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about Advent. The seventh day means nothing to me. So even if these people had talked about that, it literally went in one ear and out the other. All I was hearing was stuff that they're teaching from the Bible that seemed legit. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, we start watching 3ABN in the fall of 2006. My dad started watching it first and encouraged me to watch it. And so it was Doug Batchelor's Most Amazing Prophecy series was the first thing I watched. Um, then eventually he had a second series called Here We Stand, I think, 
full-length evangelistic series, and then David Asherick's Discover Prophecy series. And I really didn't like David initially. I felt like he talked too fast, and I was a teacher, you know, so I just felt like this guy's talking too fast. And then, like, lo and behold, the guy ends up being, you know, one of my favorite preachers later. But um, the more I listened to him, the more I gave him a chance, the more I liked him. I really liked the way that he thought, Mm. and his story reminded me of my own you know, he tried finding his worth in education and success in education, and that didn't work. And then in a relationship, and that didn't work. And then in professional skateboarding and, you know, in music, and that didn't work. And I thought, man, I know that feeling. Like, I did these things and, and achieved certain things in life, but, like, I wasn't finding what I was looking for. I didn't achieve academic success, <laughs> to be fair. But um, I was capable, just not functional. Mm. And But I did in all the other areas, and I just thought, like, something's missing and so eventually I just like was, you know, all about this dude. And so like I went on the internet and just looked for every sermon of his I could find. And eventually came across a series he did in Loma Linda called Restoration in 2004. That was a big, big blessing to me. I listened to those messages a lot. And interestingly enough, I did those restoration meetings three years ago. Um, and it meant so much to me to actually be able to go back and preach at a place and do a series of meetings that were a large reason of why I became an Adventist. So that meant a lot to me to give back to an organization and, and to a, a series that did so much for me. And so I started watching that for a year, uh, but then I got to do it the last year of drum corps in 2017, or 2007, um, and age out the last year I did it. The, the, the top 12 make world championships, mm-hmm. and we were 13th place the first two years I marched, so we just missed it. Aww. Really made it to semis. And then the last year that I marched as the head drum major, uh, we actually got 10th place. We're in the top 10. What? And the DCI finals was actually at the Rose Bowl. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty big hype to kind of end on a high note. Mm-hmm. And that year uh, in 2007, uh, the, my students at my high school, the old high school that I went to, I was teaching the drum line there. They had an undefeated season. They had the highest score of the day of any size class. Um, because, you know, music competitions for, for marching band are done by the size of your school, mm-hmm. size of attendance. And like my students got the highest score of any size, every show they went to. And so like I had this big success in drum corps, then I had the success in teaching music. I also got promoted to management at Finish Line where I was working in retail. It's like all the success is coming into my experience and the drum corps I was a member of asked me to work for them. Ooh. But, you know, God had told me not to do it in the first place, let alone not to work there, just wasn't going to be a good option. And eventually, like, it was pretty clear, I can't do this. And my dad asked me in the fall of 2007, right around Thanksgiving time, it's November, he says, buddy, this Sabbath thing's either true or it's not. What are you going to do? And I'm so thankful he asked me that. I mean, I wasn't at the moment, because, you know, like, you know, football games are Friday night for my kids. Field shows are Saturdays for my kids, and I'm Mm -hmm. working in management and retail, and we're about to enter the busiest time of year from Thanksgiving through Christmas. This is like the worst time to ask that question. Um, But there aren't field shows or football games anymore because the season ends, you know, in October or early November. Mm -hmm. And I knew my dad was right, and it was kind of scary, but I I had to take that leap of faith, you know. So I I make the decision, all right. So I tell my boss, I'm an assistant manager. I tell my manager, like, hey – so like I'm gonna start keeping Sabbath and stuff. So I can't work Friday nights or Saturdays during the busiest season of the year as an assistant manager. So you know, like assistant managers are the ones who run the store. You know, like because a manager will be there too, but they kind of oversee the assistant managers. But like you know, I I run the store by myself. The manager's not there many times during the week and even mm-hmm. on weekends. So there's only so many of us assistant managers. I'll work every Sunday. I told them, you know, that's no problem. But Anyway, it's just this process that we had to work through. And so there were some Sabbaths I had to work. And I was like, well, you know, God understands. I'm working most Sabbaths, but like God was really convicting me that I'm not asking for some of you. I'm asking for all of you. Mm. And I get into the summer of 2008 and um, it becomes clear, like God's telling me I need to leave. I didn't leave my teaching job yet because there weren't any, you know, Sabbath issues at that stage. I was still teaching this during the week. And because I, I was, you know, conditioning my students year round, not just in the in marching season. And so I had to leave my teaching position and God convicted me to leave my work. And Ooh. so like I've left everything at this stage. But yeah. what led into that was in the spring of 2008. That was in August when I left everything. But in the spring, I get a phone call at finish line and it's a familiar voice. 
And I said, you'll have to forgive me, but your name wouldn't have to be John Lomacane, would it? And he's one of the 3ABN, you know, main hosts there. And he's the pastor of the church there at 3ABN. And that place is like 40 minutes from me. I didn't mention this, but like literally where I grew up is about 35 minutes from 3ABN World Headquarters. And I had never heard of a Seventh-day Adventist for 21 years and had never heard of 3ABN. That was kind of a big deal, you know, that like I didn't know anything about this thing. So like they're reaching the world, but I live in the shadow under their satellite dish and have never heard of them or the message they're proclaiming to the world. And so uh, that was kind of the irony of finding it on TV. No one knocked on my door. You know, I found it on TV because it's a local TV station. So that was why it was available. And um, so anyway, I get this call and it's John Lomacang. And I was like, hey, I've heard you on TV. I love it when you sing. So the guy, he ordered some North Face jackets, I think. So he comes in a week later or something once his stuff gets there. And I'm jazzed, you know. I'm like, man, like all my friends think I'm crazy, but the Sabbath is a Sabbath and dead people are dead and no one's in hell right now. And the Pope's the Antichrist and they think I'm crazy, but I don't think I'm crazy. Do you think I'm crazy? And you can just tell he's got this look in his eyes of like, got him. You know, this young guy who's on fire for the message, like any evangelist would love to see something like this, or any pastor, someone who already is is hearing the message and excited about it. There's no stereotypes, like just here, come join us, be us, <laughs> you know, sign on the dotted line, we'll take you. And so I get super excited. I go to his church and his wife is so sweet. Like she brings me before everybody, oh, this is D. he's new here. And she just takes good care of me. And John makes me go up front on stand up on the platform and says, this young man is going to do evangelism in Carbondale, or he's going to be like an evangelist and work in Carbondale. Now that's a rival town to where I grew up. That's where the, the, the university was. I did marching Saluki and that's where my dad worked. That's where I was born, but it's a rival town to where I grew up in Marion. And we didn't really like Carbondale all that much. You know, there's a heavy kind of influence from Chicago and anybody from Southern Illinois is not a fan of Chicago. Most people aren't because And it's kind of like those situations where like an area of the state runs the whole state, but doesn't really speak for the whole state just because of the political influence. So we're generally not a fan, just a different culture. We're simple, slow people, just a kind of a harsh, brash environment. And so uh, anyway, I have no desire to live in Carbondale. I thought John was crazy. He's like, this young man's going to do evangelism in Carbondale. I thought this old man is crazy. Like I'm not going to do evangelism and you know, I'm not going to go to Carbondale. He's crazy. What the crazy thing was, three years later, I had just graduated from the Arise program, an evangelism training school, and was doing evangelism in a church plant in Carbondale. What he said was prophetic, and he didn't even know it, because I wasn't from Carbondale. There's no reason to even mention Carbondale, because I was living in Marion when he said this. Yeah, so it was just crazy. So this is in 2008. Um, I don't think I mentioned this, but in, in... 2007, right after I'd finished that last season of drum corps and was teaching my students, things got really hard financially. And actually our house got foreclosed and a car got repossessed. So now all we have is a used car and we went into an apartment. So we left our home where I grew up my, my whole life to that stage that got, you know, uh, foreclosed. We had to leave that house and move into an apartment in Marion. We were living in Pittsburgh, a small community outside of Marion. And so at that stage, I'm working in Marion John shows up. I'm talking to him. He brings me to the church or he invites me to church. And it was helpful for me, but it's kind of a drive. And when I don't have any money and so forth, eventually I wasn't able to go that distance. But Angie, John's wife, had introduced me to this elderly gentleman there um, who was a World War II veteran. He actually looked just like my dad's grandfather, uh, the kind of spiritual mentor he looked back upon uh, once he got converted and looked just like him. And so anyway, I a few Sabbaths. He was living in a travel trailer with a cat. He was volunteering at 3ABN, and he had fallen in his trailer, had a stroke, and really wasn't going to be good for him to go back to that trailer after he was done with his rehab. And so I just took him into our place. So I slept in the living room on the floor. I gave him my bedroom, and I took care of the guy um, after I left my job. Uh, my jobs, my teaching job and the retail job for a series of months. I tried to go to Arise in 2008, but God said no. I tried to go to AFCO and that didn't work either. Another school of evangelism. And I was really bummed about that because I really wanted to go and learn and learn under David particularly. And God gave the same no when I was driving back from visiting Arise uh, in that church up there in 2008. 
that he gave when I was got my contract from drum corps. And I thought, I'm not going to do this again. If God says no, I'm not going to mess around. And what I didn't know was it was a matter of timing. Um, it wasn't a matter of no forever. And so what ends up happening is I take care of Jim for a series of time. I spend a lot of time in nature, just taking pictures, being quiet with God. And that's when I made my real full surrender. Uh, no more holding back, no more trying to you know, fulfill my own dreams and ambitions while being a Christian and serving God. Like this was the all in moment for me. And uh, eventually Jim passed away in the spring or early part of 2009 and was looking for service opportunities and eventually got a job in emergency management, uh, working in public safety through the AmeriCorps VISTA program, kind of helping people at the poverty level. So I moved to West Central Illinois, um, didn't do too well when I first moved there, made some mistakes. My dad ended up moving up there with me um, because you know he didn't have a place to go after a span either. And it was helpful. I needed some additional kind of mentorship at that season of my life. And I, I went to this Adventist church. Um, I drove by a sign that said Adventist church the first week that I was there. But I swear it said Baptist church. All I saw was TIS, didn't think anything of it. I thought, where's the Adventist church in this area? So I looked it up on the internet. And lo and behold, as I'm driving to work the next day, I saw there's a sign that, that tells me where it is. So I go to this church and the first Sabbath I go, my dad wasn't there yet. And they're having a testimony Sabbath. Uh, we're told in the spirit of prophecy to not expect a sermon every Sabbath, but you know, to actually you know, do testimonies every once in a while. So they do. And um, I get there, there's not a sermon. And all these people are bearing testimonies about this, that, and the other thing. And I had just done my orientation for AmeriCorps and had witnessed to my roommate there. And God was convicting me, go up there and tell that testimony. And I already sensed that I was going to cry. And I thought, absolutely not. I'm an introvert. I didn't know it at that stage. But I'm an introvert. And like being in front of people and then crying in front of strangers, like I've never been to this church. These people don't know me from Adam. Absolutely not, Jesus. You're crazy. I'm not doing that. But the spirit was just wrestling me with me and wouldn't give me a break. So I thought, uh, uh, and I was like, well, I go downstairs. I put water on my face. The pastor says, is there anyone else? Someone else goes up. Is there anyone else? Someone else goes up. And I'm like, oh, my days. I don't want to do this. So I throw water on my face downstairs. I thought, all right, Jesus. If he asks again, I'll go up. He says, is there anyone else? And I was like, uh, if he asks one more time after this, I'll go up. And so he asked one more time after that. I go up. My worst nightmare comes true. I cry. I feel like a total weirdo loser guy. Like, you know, these people don't know me from Adam. They're like, hey, my name's D. You don't know me. Anyway, I tell the story. I cry. I sit down. And, like, I can just feel eyeballs all over me. Like, I just know people are looking at me. And I don't want to be here. I can't believe you made me do that. And so I'm walking out of the church. And the pastor is just this sweet guy, a Romanian guy. Young, young guy, too. He's probably in his like mid-30s at that stage. And uh, kind of a newer pastor of sorts. And he invites me to his house for lunch. And if you've grown up in the Adventist church, hospitality is a common thing. But it was not for me. Like, no one had ever invited me to – I mean, this old guy had invited me to the trailer, you know, his little travel trailer to make stir-fry one time and hung out with him. But, like, I'd never encountered this. And he's the pastor of the church and so in my mind, I'm thinking, like, you're a really important person. Why do you want me in your home? I just couldn't believe this guy invited me to his house. And so I go, you know. I, I feel, like, really, really privileged that a pastor would invite me to his house. I couldn't believe it. And so I thought, I mean, sure, I'll go. So I go. And I'm not a vegetarian at this stage. I think I'm, like, chicken, tuna, and turkey, you know, kind of eating just lighter, leaner meat. And uh, but I'm Leviticus 11 for sure. I understood that much. I'm not an Adventist yet. I, you know, I'm close. I don't know what to do about this Ella White lady. I still got some questions. And like what you're saying on TV makes sense to me, but does it work? Because a lot of the churches near me were dead, and I can't drive all the way to 3 ABN every week. It's super far, you know, driving distance-wise, and I can't afford it. And so, uh, and just people weren't taking time to answer my questions that could have been answered and would have helped me early on. And so, um, anyway, I go to his house and his wife makes this like, you know, Romanian bread and potatoes. And then there was this like hot dog looking thing. And I remember when I put that thing in my mouth, it was absolutely disgusting. I thought to myself, like, I have no idea what that is, but that's not a hot dog. It was so gross. And like, I don't know if like when you're baptized, all of a sudden you just like, you know, 
develop a taste for veggie links or whatever. I don't know. But to this day, I'm assuming I've never had it since and it's still gross. It could have been the beloved Big Frank. I don't know. But regardless, I just was not not cool with that. It wasn't very good at all. So, and like I'll do stuff out of principle. I couldn't even finish the thing. It was so bad. But anyway, he just befriends me. You know, He actually asked me to help him with something. He had just bought a car at an auction and asked me if I'd help him go down and pick it up and drive him down and just was able to connect with him. And then my dad moved up and was doing work and the Haiti earthquake happened. And I thought I was going to go do some work in Haiti. But what ends up happening is um, I go to three of camp meetings. Some church members are going to go down to Southern Illinois. It's about a two hour drive or something and a uh, two and a half hour drive maybe. And so, no, maybe it's, no, it's a four hour drive. It's two hours to St. Louis and then two hours further south. And so um, I go with some of the church members and David Ashrick is going to preach there. So I get there and Angie Loma King sees me in the back of the sanctuary. And she, she makes a beeline for me and says, oh, it's so good to see you. And you know, what are you doing now? And whatever. And I was like, well, um, you know, I, I live in Quincy, Illinois. And she's like, oh, it's so good to see you. And, uh, you know, David Ashrick's going to be here. I said, yeah, he's speaking next. She said, he's speaking next. Well, what are you doing sitting all the way back here? And I was like, uh, I don't want to be on TV. And I don't have to look over anybody's head. And you need to come up front. I was like, no, nah, I'm okay. No, come up front. No, nah, I'm okay. She's like, no come with me. Like, oh, dang. And you don't, you don't cross a Caribbean woman. And so uh, she brings me up front and, and they're like, the seats are usually full by this stage because they're filming, you know, and, and the sanctuary has a lot of people, but not everyone wants to sit where the sit where the cameras can see them. So they're not like filling seats. So it looks full. It actually is full, but just some people don't want to sit there. So anyway, these seats should be full by now, but there's one open seat in the front row. And Angie brings me up front and, and asks the person sitting next to this open seat, is anyone sitting there? And she says, good, sit down. She doesn't even wait for their answer. And so anyway, I sit and, and lo and behold, David Asher's preaching, and there's this moment in the sermon where he says, I'm looking at, all these, at the front row, and there's very different people here, very different people. And he says, you know, this man is very different from this woman and this man from this woman. And, uh, and then so then he points at me and says, what's your name? And I'm like, oh, man, uh, D, 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 D. And so, and what's your name? Joan. And so he starts, you know, talking and using my name and this lady's name as an illustration back and forth. And then the end kind of makes this point that, you know, now does God do as he does with us? You know, then don't get me wrong. I love D, but I don't really like him. And, you know, but does God like us? God loves us. Yes. But does God like us? It's a sermon called the friend of God or a friend of God or something like that. They did a three being camp meeting in 2010. And so anyway, uh, I'm like somewhat horrified, but like, <laughs> anyway, it is what it is. So I go talk to him at lunch. I was like, hey, that's cool, I guess. Anyway, like I'm trying to figure out what to do in ministry. And I had emailed him a year earlier um, and just asking for advice. And he's like, well, I don't really know what to tell you, but because uh, I don't know enough about your story, but I do run a school, but God told me not to go to his school. And like, do I tell him that? Like, nah, probably not. <laughs> And, but that began a process that I go home right after that. And I bought a new Bible for my dad and I bought one for me too, uh, for Father's Day for him, I bought one for me too. And in my devotions, like God's just speaking to me. And there's this text in Luke where there's this woman who her son has died and she's a widow and it's her only son. And Jesus sees her, he's moved with compassion for her. And then he walks over and he says, don't weep. And he touches the coffin and he says, young man, I say to you, arise. Now, at this stage, I had read, you know, the Bible, you know, some, and I had read that text, but not from this version. It was the NIV I read before. This was the New King James. And it was like the verses just jumped off the page, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, it's time. Go to Arise. So I walk out of my bedroom. I tell my dad, and dad's like, buddy, you know, God told us not to go. I don't know what to tell you. And he was right. But what God was doing was using this process to kind of break my dependence upon my dad and learn how to hear from God for myself because I didn't know how. And so that process kind of began and I'm freaking out because I don't have any money to go to this thing. And like dad has always been right about everything spiritually. And so I'm thinking like, man, maybe I'm wrong, but like, I think that God's speaking. And so I talked to my pastor, he talks to the church and they'd raised some money. I fill out an application by faith. Unfortunately, I get accepted, which means I got to pay for this thing and I don't have any money. And I end up having to give up my slot because the deadline comes for me to give half the tuition and I don't have it. And so I called the administrator. I was like, hey, I can't go. I really want to go, but I don't have the money. So 
give it to somebody on the waiting list. And then I call them the next day and say, but I really want to go. And I have a dream that I'm at the Arise program. And it's in my, have you ever had a dream where like you're in a place, but it doesn't look like that place? Like maybe you're dreaming that you're in your house, but it doesn't look like your house. Well, I have that. And I'm in the Arise program and David is teaching, but it looks like my grandma's like kitchenette area. And I didn't ask for this. I don't know why it's happening. And uh, but I just had this sense, like maybe God's speaking to me and other stuff happens, but like, it's just not looking good. You know, the finances just are not there. And we get really close to the deadline. I started buying lottery tickets. Like, I don't know any better at this stage. And like, I totally told the Lord, like, look, all I need is $4,500. If I win $5,000 in a lottery ticket, I'll pay 500 in tithe and give the rest to a rise. Like, I'm not looking to get rich. I'm literally just trying to go to the school. And but I don't win any lottery tickets for obvious reasons. And so I'm just freaking out, man. So freaked out and, um, and stressed out by all of this because dad's not seeing it, but God's telling me to go. My pastor's encouraging me. The church doesn't have enough money. It's a small country church. And so it's like the weekend before move in. And cause I had another dream where I'm in a classroom setting and it actually looks like a classroom setting this time. And David's teaching again and I'm sitting some distance away from him, but he's talking to this guy face to face. They're standing and facing each other. And I'm kind of to David's left. And this guy asks David, he says, how did he get here? And he points to me in the dream, but he doesn't look at me. And David says, oh, I took care of it. And then the dream was over. And I just had this heavy impression that God's telling me, I'm going to take care of it. You're going to go. And so I, I just, I don't know what to do. And so I've never done this before, but I'm just going to fast and pray for three days. You know, Paul did this and other people did this in the Bible. I'm just going to fast and pray for three days. So I do. And um, I didn't go to church that Sabbath and just stayed home and prayed. And as I closed my fast Sunday evening, it's move in day and Sunday evening. Uh, no, maybe Monday's move in day. Yeah, I think it's Monday. And so it's the night before move in. I close my Sabbath, I pray, and I don't know this, but right around that same time that I pray to close out that fast, the administrator from Arise emails my pastor and says, hey, what's going on with D? Now, why is he even asking? They gave up my slot, they went to the, the waiting list. Why is this guy even asking this? And they have, an, they have an even number of students, so for outreach, it's perfect. Why would you accept an odd number now? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. I've got that right now, I've got 13 students in my program. And so you could have three people in outreach or, or you have, you know, like we had two people knock on doors and one person went by themselves and we'll kind of rotate for studies. It's just complicated. So why is he even asking this? So my pastor texts me the night that night, or maybe the next morning and says, Hey, can you meet me at the church? So I walk over to the church and he's like, Hey, so the church raised some more money and we're like a thousand dollars short. Turns out that one of the church members gave their whole social security check to go towards my tuition. And, um, and so they, they're almost there. There's a thousand dollars short and Arise actually put up some more money that the, the administrator from Arise said that, Hey, we've actually got a little bit more money we can give towards D's tuition too. And so, um, and they'd already offered some before that. So my pastor says, let's call them and see if they'll let you show up. If we pledge to pay off your tuition by the time you graduate. And this guy's just going to bat for me, man, just a man of God who really feels that God is a calling on my life and is doing whatever he can to support me. And that just meant so much to me. And so uh, the administrator says, you know, we normally don't do that, but for D, we'll make an exception. And a week later, I'm on a plane. I got there a week late. A week later, I'm on a plane flying to Arise. And actually, my pastor bought the ticket himself because I couldn't even afford a plane ticket. And that same grandmother that it was in her kitchenette area where I did the uh, where I had the first dream about David teaching, I actually sold her my TV to be able to have some food money while it arrives. And so I go, and it changed my life, man. Like. I met so many amazing friends there. Uh, we just had a, a 10 year reunion uh, on Zoom a couple weeks ago. And um, it was just so great, you know, how helpful it was. The staff there believed in me and supported me and were so encouraging. And uh, Mark Howard had a class on the spirit of prophecy that changed my life. I taught that same class last week to my students. And all of my questions about the spirit of prophecy were answered. And I ended up getting, and it was just crazy. Like I did a worship there. Everyone had to do a worship at least once because there were 49 of us. And you can only do it once because it's only a three-month program. So I did a worship and like the spirit of God just fell in that room. And it was just a powerful experience. 
And I, I prayed for days leading into that, that I wouldn't cry. And I ugly cried through the whole thing. and was so embarrassed, but God really used it to bless my classmates and even some of my teachers. And then, you know, at the end, I have a final exam and like I'm doing Bible work. I'm knocking on doors, giving Bible studies and God's blessing that. And my teachers believe in me. And I did not believe in me. John Loma King believed in me. My dad believed in me and my teachers believed in me, but I didn't. But I couldn't argue with the fact that every time I was doing something for God, God was showing up. And it was just clear that God had a call on my life. And so my final exam was to do a sermon. And so I did a sermon on, on, we had to pick a New Testament character that wasn't Jesus and wasn't Paul. And he had 10 minutes. And if you go over, like they stop you. If you're praying, doesn't matter. Like they stop you if you go over 10 minutes. A hard and fast deadline. And so I preach, God really blesses it. And um, David told one of my, I don't remember how, but one of my classmates found out Mater, I guess it was David's favorite sermon. And um, it just ended up being one of these things that like, I did not believe in me, but God just kept showing up. He really blessed. And so it, that, that program changed my life. I got baptized December 4th, 2010. So 10 years ago, I got baptized and um, I don't regret it. And graduated a week later and but things got really hard for dad at home financially and he ended up going to a homeless shelter and so when i graduated i didn't have the money to fly home i would have been stuck at a rise and so my pastor actually bought a ticket for me to fly home i didn't even go home i went to st louis to this homeless shelter where my dad was and he wasn't even in st louis he was at some other site that these people had and so like i fly into st louis I've got my certificate of excellence in hand and I'm walking through the streets of St. Louis. It's dark. It's like 10 o'clock at night. It's crazy cold. Thankfully, nobody mugged me or robbed me or anything. It was too cold for that foolishness. And homeless shelters don't let people in at night usually, but these people did because my dad was part of this network of shelters and called them and told them to let me in. And they did. Thankfully, I had to sleep on the street that night. That would have been such a scary experience. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have any money. Like it could have been bad. Um, but God took care of me. I was fine. I was in that homeless shelter for about three months and that process changed my life. It was such a blessing. And God taught me a lot about myself, about discipleship. Of all things, my responsibility was to take care of sheep um, and to feed them bread because they didn't have hay there to feed them. And it's just like these spiritual parallels. I got the Moses treatment, basically. I was too proud to deal with real people because uh, all the you know nice things people said about me. So God gave me the Moses treatment and let me take care of sheep for a few months before I got in actual ministry with people. And eventually a job opened up back home um, to do some ministry and did that for about a year working with that church plant where John Loma King said I'd be in evangelism in Carbondale. I did do that. And then uh, worked for an academy for about two and a half years, um, teaching Bible and running their disaster response program. And there was a Bible worker for about, I don't know, a year and a half. And towards the last part of that, then worked for a media ministry for about two and a half years, traveling and speaking all over the country, investing in young people. And then um, from there was offered a job to start a school of evangelism with the Pennsylvania Conference. So I got hired in late August of 2018, and I've been doing that ever since. So I spent about a year doing recruitment, development, hiring, curriculum, all of that by myself, accounting, budgets. And a year, 11 months later, we had a fully functioning program with students, with amazing teachers, Dwight Nelson, James Rafferty, uh, Nathan Renner, Paul Conniff, Rico Hill, Stephen Grabner. Um, just, a, just God really blessed us with a great group of teachers. The first year out had seven amazing students. Camus, you were one of those seven amazing students. And this year we've got 13 students. Mark Finley's teaching. David Ashrick's going to teach. Um I'm just, I'm just amazed. Like I'm just some, you know, white boy from the Midwest who didn't believe in himself, but didn't even believe in God, let alone himself. And um, that's kind of my story. I didn't believe in God, but God believed in me. And that's the only reason I'm doing what I'm doing today. Any influence I've had in anybody's life, anyone who's been blessed by my ministry or messages is, is Jesus. You know, I didn't believe in me. Jesus did, and he put key men in my life who also believed in me when I needed it most. And I just caught on. Uh, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I caught on to the fact that every time I put myself out there for God, God showed up. And that's been the case ever since. So yeah, I've been in ministry the last 10 years and learning more about God 
every day and I'm just thankful to, to run this program and to see it change my students' lives. So that's, that's kind of my story. Um, there's a lot of details apart from that, but I don't want to keep you here all night. So that's basically, that's, that's my story. God and his love, like so amazing and like always pursuing us, like no matter how long it takes us, even if our conversion is an evolutionary process, which <laughs> it feels like it is, at least for me. Yeah. And like using our mistakes, like so often God's like, don't do this. And we're like, oh, but God, it's going to be fine. So we go ahead and do it anyway. And well, big surprise, we end up regretting it. But he doesn't let that go to waste. Mm -hmm. He still uses that. Like, yes, it would be ideal if we hadn't done it in the first place, but we did. And as long as we turn back to God and keep walking and working with him, he can turn the bad things and the mistakes into good things. And I don't know, it was just so cool to see where God calls us because like you're saying like you're not like big to do, no offense at all. I really appreciate you. But like God takes like the most random people you would never think of and he like yeah. I'm gonna make you do great things. And you're like, God, what are you doing? You're so crazy. It's and true. It is. And then, like, the thing, like, okay, like, the two things that I most resonated with was food. Adventist food sometimes is not good. I swear <laughs> that their taste buds died. Um, it's, yeah, like, this whole, like, applesauce and peanut butter on pancakes thing just freaks me out. I was like, I don't know what's wrong with you people, <laughs> but, like, it's butter and syrup or Smart Balance and, like, legitimate maple syrup. I don't, there's just certain things I haven't fully caught on to. Like, I've had the most delicious food of my life since becoming a vegetarian and a vegan, but like still like my, my initial process was just like, I don't know, like I was such an uncultured white boy. Like I had never had Thai food, Indian food. Like mm. I, I, a whole nother world was opened up to me um, yeah. <laughs> through this process. And I'm thankful for the diversity and the beautiful things, but there are still some quirky things. I, I'm down on haystacks. I'm fine with that. Roma is disgusting. Sorry, y'all. Ticino's where it's at, but in a general sense, um, yeah, you can have those those moments still. Oh, I I grew up in Idaho, and the culture is very much meat and potatoes. So, like any like vegetarian like fake meat, it really cannot compete, and they should really stop trying because <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's not working, y'all. It is not working. Um, <laughs> but the last point, and I guess like a more spiritual point. Um, it's like a reluctance to speak, like when God asks us to, like mm -hmm. literally my, a lot of me, um, Kylie will tell you, I really like hate to talk about things. Like even if we need to talk about it, because like I'm a very passionate person. And th so the conversation can very quickly escalate into an argument. Not that I'm mad about it, but we just talk on different wavelengths, but like even speaking like upfront and it's like, oh yeah, I know what I could say. And like, I write sermons in my spare time sometimes just because I, I, it's fun. Um, and Dee taught me how to do that. So it's all your fault. Um, hey, you've made me cry more than once with your sermons. And I've cried more than once speaking. And like, that's what I hate. It's like, God calls you to speak. And like, unfortunately, sometimes to touch people's hearts, you have to cry. And so like, that's learning like God's love. And God's love is vulnerable. And it's crazy mm -hmm. and it's radical. And it's like, you don't just get to stand up there and try to tear people's hearts out. You got to tear your own out while you're doing it. Um, <laughs> God is not nice and he's loving and awesome, but sometimes we have some disagreements. But like, I think that's like the stepping process, at least a lot for me, like learning that God loves you and like who he really is and his character is really the foundation where we need to start. And then yeah. from there, doctrine and everything else is important. And like Kylie and I do like a lot of outreach and we like participate in a lot of different denominational things because there's not a lot that our church unfortunately has to offer the community right now. And we always say like, you know, it's fine because they have truth and the stuff we can learn from. And as long as they've got like the character right of God, like we can all sit down and talk and have community together. And that's super important part of Christianity because like through other Christians like it's a refinement and grinding sometimes but sometimes like you're cut to the quick by their love and like other things that they do 
And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's definitely very cool. Like God's relentless love, always pursuing us and having us do crazy, amazing things. Yeah. And, you know, it, over time, I came to realize that every one of our doctrines should be teaching us something about God's love. It's just, I wasn't taught, I mean, at, at Arise, I did learn that. That's where I kind of had that aha, like, wait, you people do get it. Like, it's not just what you're saying is true. Like, the thing that won me, you can have that too. Like, that's where I first really encountered that was at the Arise program. And I wish more people knew that because, you know, we eventually get into those kind of like doctrine or gospel false arguments never like no you can have both like you can you can preach the love of jesus while communicating the fact that people don't burn for hell forever you know burn in hell forever or that the sabbath is a gift to man or you know the validity of the law or so forth and so that's uh that's a big emphasis in our program and i appreciated that emphasis in the arise program that we can teach the fullness of the Adventist message while uplifting jesus you mm-hmm. don't have to pick or choose and i think that's where adventism shines the brightest is when we do that. Definitely. And I think that's where like Christianity and everything shines the brightest because like yeah. God is love and like that is the main attribute of his character. And like as soon as we forget that or like go astray from that, like we're no longer walking in God. And he talks about mm-hmm. that. Like you can prophesy and speak these great sermons, but if there's not love in you, then God isn't in you and it's just all pointless. So mm-hmm. I think that's like definitely something very good we need to remember. Like God is love and like his love will pursue us and his love is always there and calling us to do crazy, amazing things. And also sometimes like calling us not to do things that we want to do, but it's all in love, but it's not like a superficial love. It's like a deep, vast love that's beyond comprehension. Yeah, it's true. All right. I've talked everybody's ear off. Thank you again, D. You know, we definitely had the most technical difficulties with you than anybody we've ever had and i apologize kylie and i both feel really bad about it but thank you for being such a trooper and still sharing your story anyway absolutely my privilege all right everybody that's been this week's episode tune in next week bye if you've enjoyed today's episode don't forget to follow share like and review also you can contact us at our facebook page that is god is real god is good podcast or you can email us at God is real, God is good, podcast at gmail.com. Bye!